The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project, Season 2, As You Like It. This episode features Orlando in Act 1, Scene 1. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Erin Kelly. My name is Karen Lee Pickett. I'm the Artistic Director of the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. And I'm here with Dr. Erin Kelly, uh, Associate Professor of English at the University of Victoria. We're here again for the Soliloquy Project Season 2. Great to see you. Karen. Great to see you too. And Season 2, how exciting. How exciting. So we're launching the season with um, uh, the idea that we're going to do each episode is going to be from the same play. So um, the play that we've chosen is As You Like It. And uh, the first speech from that we're doing from the play is the first speech of the play. It's the very, it's the opening of the speech that Orlando uh, gives at the top of the play. Um, so why do you think this is the, the first thing in the play? Well, I think that the way that any play starts is incredibly important um, in terms of setting up just themes and tones and signaling to an audience what they're in for. So there are plays uh, by Shakespeare and by his contemporaries that open with a narrator figure, a chorus coming out and giving a speech, giving an introduction. There are uh, plays that start with something that's a bit of action. Um, and this play starts in a, in a rather different way. It starts with basically a couple of characters coming onto the stage and they are literally in the middle of a conversation. We, we find ourselves encountering their conversation already well underway from what we can tell. Um, particularly because, you know, Orlando starts by saying, as I remember Adam, as though he's answering a question, as though he's... Th this sense that we're already in the middle of something that's already started, I think is something that we get increasingly as this play unfolds. You know, in a little while, we're also going to find out that, you know, the usurpation of Duke Senior has already happened. Um, there, there, are, there are other things that you know have already happened before the time of the play starting. So we're starting even with those opening lines with a signal of you're in the middle of it. You got to catch up. Among other things, um, he does say very quickly. Um, he's referring to what was left as a bequest. Uh, from his father. Um, it was upon this fashion bequeathed me by will, but poor a thousand crowns. Well, a, a thousand crowns is actually a heck of a lot of money 
in this period. Now, it's it's not a lot of money if you're a nobleman, if you're a duke, but it's it's it would be a lot of money for a, for a normal kind of person. So even with that line, we're getting set up, I think, um, at least a little bit of a question of what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be really, truly poor? What does... Again, we're going to see that over the course of this play. Who's truly needy? Who is somehow needy and put out, but still has enough jewels that they could just walk into the forest and buy a farm and not blink twice? Um, so, so th- there's there's that. What's of course being set up here is you know this this contrast between what it means to be civilized and what it means to be savage, what it means to be urban as opposed to rural. And that this play, again, over the course of several acts, we're going to see those ideas both play out, but also complicated in all kinds of ways, where we're actually going to see some quite savage and ignoble behavior in the court. We're going to see some quite noble, virtuous, um, upstanding, kind, gentle behavior in a, a very uh, rustic setting, uh, woods and fields and uh, pastures. He sees himself as something that is too much like animals or kept with animals. You know, for call you that keeping for a gentleman of my birth that differs not from the stalling of an ox, his horses are bred better. I mean, he's basically, over the course of the speech, um, pointing to animals. And I do think that over the course of this play, this play has a lot of animals in it. A lot of animals get alluded to. Um, There's a really famous speech later in the play uh, where a character is reported as, you know, comparing himself to a deer that's been wounded. Uh, There's lots of sheep in this play. We're going to get a lion. We're going to get a snake. We're going to get... There's just lots and lots and lots of animals. Um, And I also think then one of the things this play keeps playing with over and over again is that one of the ways that you understand that someone is human and also what kind of human they are is the relationship that they have with animals and whether they are too close to them, not close enough in the right relationships of power and authority and control over them, that they know what to do with them. That that um, and, and I think that gets introduced here. Um, I also think that you know, when he uh, is connecting up ideas about, you know, being a brother and what the bloodline is, um, he, he says that his brother minds my gentility with my education. His gentility, he's worried here that that is something that could be undermined, which I think introduces a question that we're also going to see play out. You know, what is the nature of gentility? Boy, is that a question we get all over 16th century literature. You know, is true gentility something that is connected to blood and bloodlines? Is true gentility something that is maybe associated with bloodlines, but more importantly involves a certain kind of moral code or behavior or virtue? Um, You know, we see this in other plays by Shakespeare. Um, think about, you know, the the bastard son Edmund in uh, King Lear, who is really interested in, well, how is it that, you know, I'm a bastard and he's true just because of 
the timing of our begetting. I mean, th- this idea of what actually constitutes true nobility shows up in tragedies, shows up in comedies. It actually shows up in literature all over the 16th century. Um, and Orlando, I think, is is pointing to that and that we actually get examples of people behaving in ways that are gentle or noble um, at all class strata, at all social strata over the course of this play. Mm-hmm. And um, something else that's interesting about this sort of introduction is that the that how it sets things up I mean, you had mentioned you know another another kind of piece of literature or another kind of play might uh, might open in a more overtly uh, fairy tale type way mm-hmm. because that's the that's essentially the the structure that we're looking at here absolutely I mean so I I, I like to say that um if if instead of having this dialogue, which is giving us the situation from Orlando's perspective, if instead we had a kind of narrator chorus figure, I, I'm really thinking of somebody like, you know, Gower in, in Pericles. Um, it would go something like this. You know, there once was a man named Sir Roland de Bois. Sir Roland de Bois had three sons. The youngest of the three sons is is brave and strong, but you know is is left poor. And this is the story of how he makes his way in the world and wins his fortune. And 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 this very much you know is a play that, among other things, has folklore elements, has romance elements, has fairy tale elements. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and and then he goes on to um, to try to prove himself in various ways. I mean, one of the first things he does is is uh, you know physically attacks his brother. Yes. Well, and and I think that you know there's a couple of things over the course of the scene that might make that seem less unexpected for um, an audience in the 16th century than it probably does for us. Um, We find out pretty quickly that, you know, his name is Orlando. Uh, We also find out that his father's name is, you know, Roland Du Bois. Um, uh, Roland and Orlando are actually the same name. Roland is both the English and the French version. Orlando is, is the Italian version. There's a really uh, popular, hugely influential across the 16th century um, Italian uh, narrative, long verse narrative uh, by Ariosto. It's called Orlando Furioso. Um, Orlando Furioso is the story of this, this great knight. One, he falls in love and he falls in love hard. And he falls in love so hard, uh, in this case, it's a Saracen maiden, so he's a Christian knight and he falls in love with a Saracen maiden, but he falls in love so hard that he does all of these kind of spectacularly foolish and very extreme emotional things. Um, And then she actually rejects him and Orlando Furioso is basically... I've seen someone translate say we should translate that into English as like raging Roland. I mean, he's he's very mad. <laughs> Orlando has a temper, and when he loses it, he fights people. So the fact that his name is Orlando, and in the first scene, we see him basically 
choking his brother may seem more odd to us than it would to um, someone in the 16th century who, as soon as they get the sense that, oh, it's an Orlando, and Orlandos are going to be hard lovers and angry guys who fight really well. Um, That's, it's wrapped up in the name. Um, It's a bit like if we were to name, uh, uh, if if we were to see a character who uh, gets named, um, uh, I don't know, you know, Louis the Fist, we're not, when he's first introduced, we're not going to be surprised if he punches somebody part of the way through the scene. And the, and the name Orlando has all of these ideas wrapped up in it. And I should be clear. I mean, it's, Orlando is, is a hero. He's, he's, he's admirable in these romances, but he just is, he's, he's a, he's an emotional creature. Um, He's given to great passions in love and in rage and in anger and in pride. And, and so, you know, this Orlando is not exactly that Orlando, but they're not completely separate. And I think the, the, the name would bring that up. Um, it's really helping to introduce that, you know, we are in a realm of romance. We are in a world that despite that very naturalistic opening of two guys having a conversation, somehow at the same time, it's not a completely realistic, everyday, real world kind of a, a play. Um, because if it were, we wouldn't have a guy named Orlando running around, probably. And then it wouldn't be... Or at least not uh, behaving this way. Right, right. And it wouldn't be so surprising to a contemporary audience when he uh, engages in and wins a wrestling match. That's- yes, yes, yes. Because because Orlando is is brave and strong and and he's the hero. Will also explain his uh, his falling in love so so quickly. fast and so hard, and in such an extreme way. And the and the rural life that he has been railing about about in the first scene, he then sort of embraces. Yeah, it's it's wonderful that um, you know he basically winds up in a place that's arguably even more rustic. He's in the woods, he's, but, you know, what we're going to see a little bit later in the play is, you know, Orlando recognizing his mistake. Uh, He comes upon, uh, you know, after he and Adam, you know, flee and he's carrying Adam because Adam is so weakened and starving. And he realizes that there's a bunch of people who have food and Orlando being Orlando, his initial impulse is to draw his sword and run in amongst them and, and, you know, shout and scream and threaten at which point their response is basically, I mean, are you hungry? You want to sit down? Can we get you a sandwich? I mean, in in more poetic Shakespeare terms, and and Orlando actually says something along the lines of, you know, I I did not think I would find anything gentle here. Yes, and that is, I think, the moment where Orlando does realize his error. That he thinks that the court is where you find things that are gentle and virtuous, and the way things are supposed to work, and true nobility, 
but actually in the world of this play where you find that is in the woods. Mm-hmm. And that's not an uncommon theme in Shakespeare. I mean, I'm just remembering from Cymbeline, you know, um, I, I've been told all savage, but at court, you know, this idea that that uh, finding people living in the woods or living rurally right. um, who who have this nobility that's lacking in the people in the palace. Yeah. Although, although again, I mean, part of what, and, and this is, you know, a very Shakespeare thing, but also a very romance thing. Um, and yet it, it complicates that idea because the people we find who are, who, who turn out to be so noble are inevitably also people who have the right aristocratic noble bloodlines. In this case, it's because those people have been expelled from the court. Um, we also, though, get in a play like, you know, say Winter's Tale, where where people just keep saying over and over again, you know, that Perdita, I can't believe that a shepherd girl would be so beautiful and so noble and she's so virtuous and she is such good medicine. It's almost like she could be a princess. It's like, well, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, she <laughs> is. She was. So, uh, and, and so that's the way in which, I mean, what, what happens with these kinds of romance plots is they both open up, um, they open things up, uh, they, they open up possibilities, they uh, challenge the status quo, you know, raising this idea that, you know, well, what if the younger son is actually better and it's unjust that the eldest son through the system of primogeniture gets everything. What if it is really truly unfair that some people just because of who they're, they're, the families they're born into are seen as quote better than others and that that doesn't really hold up. That gets opened up in a lot of these romance plots. And yet ultimately at the end, they can be seen as pretty conservative because it also uh, winds up restoring order and restoring order in a way where nothing gets too terribly disrupted. Finding out that, you know, the shepherd girl was a princess all along is one way to do that. And also, uh, you know, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. This is a comedy. It's going to end up okay. Okay. If you like wedding. (laughs) Sure. I mean, but, 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 but that, you know, in fact, I mean, this beginning of, of the play, Um, is setting up conflict. It's setting up conflict within a family, between brothers, um, between different ideas of what it means to be truly noble. Um, And by the end of the play, some of those problems will be resolved because it's a comedy. (laughs) I mean, I also think that it's very telling that who we have running around here uh, with Orlando, of course, is Adam. He keeps being referred to as Old Adam, um, but it's another one of these these names that somehow is signaling two levels. Adam is an everyday person's kind of a name, and he's an old servant, and it's a good old fashioned name. Okay, so he's a real person, but clearly he's also Old Adam in the sense of being the first man. He's he's a, a symbol of humanity. He's a symbol of a kind of you know basic bare everyday kind of stand-in for humanity, for human beings, for certain ideas about virtue and tradition and the ways that things should be. And so that name and the exchange with Adam 
between Adam and Orlando is also, I think, setting up something we see over and over and over again in this play um, is every character in here alludes to at least two or three other works of literature, you know, one folk or romance or fairy tale tradition, possibly a biblical illusion. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very thick, thick text with lots and lots of layers um, uh, interwoven with each other. And I think we get that right in this opening speech. So it's a terrific way to open the play. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, chatting about it today. And uh, we'll see you soon for the next episode. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to The Soliloquy Project, produced by the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and cozy this winter, and we'll see you again soon.